You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. So on this episode, we're going to spend some time talking about what happens when you're ready to put some money into an ETF. Busting out this wallet, tons of big bills in it. Okay, I'm ready to put it somewhere, right? What should I be looking at before I make that decision? You'd have a checklist for picking any high-end item, right? And this is no different. There's certain criteria and due diligence things you should look for. Some are more important than others, but there are many things you can do. And it's not that hard. But some of the terms in ETF due diligence can be a little frightening, a little jargony. But we have the perfect guy here today to help simplify all that. He works for the CFRA. His name's Todd Rosenbluth. And he's sort of exactly who you are. He's a mutual fund and ETF analyst. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of like me in another world. Uh, He works at his company. I work at mine. We're competition, but we're also peers. Todd writes really great stuff. I enjoy it. I also uh, push back on it sometimes. We've had some friendly debates. I see Todd all the time on the circuit. The uh, ETF circuit? That's, yeah, a thing. That's a thing. I know. That sounds funny, but like there's conferences. You see Todd on panels uh, and likewise. So he's the perfect guy to help simplify this because that's all he does. And I like that he is has a mutual fund background because ETF analysts who know the mutual fund really well tend to have a richer look at the ETF structure. So we're going to talk about due diligence, which let's come up with a better title. How about under the hood? It's cliche, but I think in this case, this is the perfect metaphor. We go from the food store to the car, right? We got our groceries. Now we're in the car. This week's episode, Under Under the the Hood. hood. Okay, Todd Rosenbluth, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks. So, Todd, who are you? I'm a New Yorker. Go, go yeah, totally. We're How, just in yeah. the deep end already. How deep just, do you want to get here? Yeah. So I head up the ETF and mutual fund research for a company called CFRA. And it's literally called CFRA? It is literally called CFRA. So it used to, the business used to be owned by MSCI. Uh, the name CFRA came out with it. I'm a former employee of S&P. I ran the, the mutual fund and ETF research at CFRA. I'm a former equity analyst. I covered tech and telecom stocks. And before that, was a mutual fund analyst uh, at the company and at ValueLine. And for the last seven years, I've been dedicated specifically to ETFs and to mutual funds and providing analysis for our end clients and, and the general public in a range of ETFs. So and, tell me what your day looks like then. So a couple of things that are primarily day-to-day. So I'm looking at trends that are going on in the marketplace, looking at investment ideas, and then trying to explain how you can participate in those investment ideas using either an ETF and or a mutual fund is, is part of what I do. So I typically write about two or three articles on a weekly basis that get published for our clients. I'm dealing with reporters, including from Bloomberg, that are working on their own stories and adding input and independent perspective in that regard. And then we have clients so that are subscribing and, and advisors and retail clients that have access to our research and that want to hear more or have questions beyond what that is, or that possibly want to learn about us before they sign up. And then I'm part of those conversations as well. You said the word independent. Yes. CFRA doesn't offer their own mutual funds or ETFs. CFRA doesn't have investment banking relationships the way that your Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs does that that offers research on investment ideas. We're purely the best ideas. And from an ETF perspective, which is relevant for this topic, we have an equal number of ETFs that we like as a number of ETFs that we don't like. So we, we cover the whole universe. We have about 1,300 ETFs that we have an opinion on, and roughly 25% in one side of the bucket, roughly 25% on the other side. You're not going to find that from others that are covering ETFs that often want to just tell you what's a good idea. So I get Todd's emails, and that's one of the reasons I thought he would be a great guest is because Todd is unique from your average ETF person because a lot of times they get pretty much all in on ETF. It's like Kool-Aid City. Todd still recommends mutual funds, and he has a reason for doing it. He also has a background in mutual funds and equities. You put that together, it makes your ETF analysis, I think, richer and deeper, and I think that's what makes Todd kind of unique. So how did you find the ETF, Todd? 
So my company, when I was at S&P, we were covering individual stocks. We were seeing the trend that investors were looking to invest in ETFs. And we wanted to come out in a different perspective. So the way that we look at it and the way we did back now almost 10 years ago and we continue to do so is to us an ETF is a basket of securities. Whether it's a stock ETF, it holds Apple and IBM and Facebook and what have you. If it holds individual bonds, then you should do that as well. So we come at this from a perspective that we cover individual stocks. We have buy, hold, sell recommendations on individual stocks. And what is going to drive an ETF forward is going to be what's inside that portfolio. Now, there's other things that we use in our research, but so we just really took the underlying holdings and formed, took the ETF wrapper and decided to do things that were connected to it. Now, the risk of the commercial part of it, we use other things that are outside of holdings analysis, and, and I know we'll get into it from a due diligence perspective, but there are things that are unique to an ETF. It trades on an exchange, so there's bid-ask spread analysis you can do. It trades and you can do technical analysis, and at the risk of getting too far in the weeds here, there's things you can do that are unique to an ETF than you would a mutual fund or an individual stock. What was your light bulb moment that you realized, boy, these things are for real? Yeah, well, it's you started seeing people buying them because it was a way to get exposure to a certain trend. So I even remember back when I was not an ETF analyst, but I remember people before we had the tech boom, the triple Qs, the the PowerShares product, which actually just goes by triple Q still. That's how uh, common that name has become, which is the NASDAQ 100. It's the largest stocks non-financial within the NASDAQ side of what it is. People were buying that. I don't think they understood what it was. And in fact, I think people still think of it as only a tech-related thing. And so I just started digging into this, understanding more of what it was. And then when S&P got back around to looking into this, I was very happy to be able to, to do that because I, I had that background, having been a former mutual fund analyst. So before you were an ETF analyst, you were a mutual fund analyst. So tell me about how you view a mutual fund versus an ETF. What's that difference like? Yeah, so we cover both of them. I head up the research for both our ETF business and our mutual fund business. We have separate ratings on ETFs than mutual funds. There's others that are combining that together. We think there's a role for both an ETF and or a mutual fund in the portfolio, whether it's actively managed or not, so passively managed and index-based. But the things that you need to focus on are different. So we don't believe the past performance of an ETF is going to give you much insight as to where is it going to go uh, in the future. So there's no there's no disrespect to anybody who's running an ETF portfolio or running an ETF itself that's tracking the S&P 500 index or the MSCI EFA index or what have you. But their job is to track that index, and they're pretty good at probably doing that, but there isn't the same skill set in picking stocks, buying in new when things are falling in value or, or spotting new trends in that regard. So whereas we use a, a performance track record in mutual fund research at CFRA, we don't rely on that for our ETF research. The S&P 500 is going to be up roughly 20% this year. It's unlikely to do that in 2018. and. And whether or not it did well this year really should have no bearing on how well it did going forward. People aren't buying ETFs that way anymore, and we don't do research there. One thing I do want to talk about here is sort of what an ETF does, right? Because it tracks an index. Right. So when you're evaluating them, can you talk about how you look at that index? Right. So what we're doing in part is less looking at the index itself and the name of the index and the rules of the index, although I think that's extremely important for an investor to do. We're looking at what is currently inside the portfolio, what fit that criteria that was there. You're, you're correct. It's very transparent. You can understand what's inside that portfolio. And if it's a market cap weighted, the largest companies tend to have the highest exposure, which is in, you know, I keep using the iShares S&P 500 or the Vanguard 500 product or the Spider 500 product. So I give everybody uh, that's in there full color, independent analysts. See, that's how that's where it comes yeah, about. Look, independent analysts worried about getting emails. Box. He checked that box. Uh, for what that is. <laughs> then then the largest companies, the Apples, the IBMs, are going to dominate that. And, and our opinion of those stocks is going to matter more. To use the S&P 500 as the example, there's an equal-weighted product that's out there from Guggenheim. RSP is a ticker. Same exact companies, but they treat every stock equally. There's more mid-cap exposure than you'd find versus the other S&P 500 index products. We're going to offer a take not whether is equal weighting better than a market cap weighting approach, but is now a better time to be in those 
companies across the S&P 500 index as opposed to being dominated by those mega cap companies, the behemoths that, are, that have earned their, their stripes. This brings up a big point, which is who is the user and what is their goal? And in my work, I have that is a big difficulty because in the terminal, we have mostly institutions, but right. there's some advisors. And I don't know if they're looking to make a quick buck over a week or they want to go in for the long haul. I think, you know, there are different. That's the thing with ETFs. Everyone uses them. So in terms of like if it's a good time or not, I think there's a challenge with what is the investor, how big are they, how concerned are they about certain areas of the ETF, and what's their holding period. How do you determine who the investor is and what their goal is when recommending an ETF? Yeah, so we're trying to offer one opinion on an ETF, not multiple opinions that are out there that are trying to target to the audience for what it is. And, and, I, and I understand where you're coming from in that regard, but that institutional investor that then is on their own running you know, money for their own, you know, doing something for their parents – would want to buy the should buy the same ETF for the same reasons necessarily because it's a good ETF that fits their approach. So we have three different ways that we look at costs, and one of them is the expense ratio, one of them is the bid ask spread. I'm going to leave the third one out for the moment for what it is. If you are a more of a buy and hold individual investor or a buy and hold institutional investor, then that expense ratio is going to matter more. If you're a more frequent trader, whether again, whether you're an institutional investor or you've got a brokerage account where it's unlimited trading or it's what three ninety five, four ninety five per trade, and some of these things are commission free, then that bid ask spread is going to matter more because the trading costs are going to add up. We use both of those. They're roughly equally weighted from a cost perspective in the way that we have a ranking of each ETF. But we still think that you need to not only know that and you need to know other things that are important. So the holdings, the how it's trading from a technical perspective, is there liquidity that's tied to that portfolio uh, as well? And if you can, you can screen, so you can use our research the same way you could be able to use on the Bloomberg terminal, and you can say, well, we don't care about the bid-ask spread, then you can choose to it's still in the rating, but you can be able to filter and sort based on certain characteristics that better fit your needs. So actually, talk to me about what your work looks like. Yeah. So we there's two different ways that, that people have access to or things that they subscribe to, either an individual or an advisor or an institutional investor that has access to our research. One, we have an opinion generated report on 1,300 plus ETFs that count. I use plus because that number keeps changing. Uh, we typically cover an ETF uh, about three months into its history. So what was there today and what is there in a couple of weeks, that number is going to change. And that opinion is going to say overweight if we like it. It's going to say underweight if we don't like it. And it's going to say market weight if we're neutral. And it's going to show you what are the drivers of that ranking overall and what are the characteristics. The second thing, which Eric was kind enough to offer compliments on, on the commentary, is I publish content that is more long form in nature, more like an article that has a specific investment topic why we think now is a good time to either be favorable or unfavorable on that topic, and then talk about some of the ETFs or mutual funds as relevant that fit into that trend with a really trying to diagnose what are the differences in those products. So if it's a technology focus, you know, what do we think of large cap technology versus something that offers more smaller companies inside that versus something that is more uh, rigorous from a fundamental perspective, looking at certain characteristics like dividends, for example. And there's there's an ETF for that uh, as well. There's an ETF for everything. There's an ETF for almost everything. If there wasn't, then we wouldn't see more white space. We wouldn't see, you know, how many how many ETFs have we launched this year over 250? 250 and there's Ish. more in, in registration to come out in, in 2018. So there's still some white space or equally as important. And again, I think we'll probably get there from a due diligence aspect. There's two or three or four of these ETFs that are closely aligned for a certain investment theme, which makes the choice harder. It makes it more fun for Eric and myself to offer commentary on Job what security. makes different. Yes, the industry continues to grow <laughs> and, and thankfully they need more. And even though more money is going into some of the cheaper products, people still want to buy some of the, these products tied to lithium, for example, or cybersecurity. And, and you want to know what else, what do you think of that? And that's, that's where hopefully CFRA can come in. Yeah, we uh, put a note out on buyback and buyback ETFs, which is when companies buy back their shares. And there's a couple ETFs for that, not just one. And uh, the guy who runs BI was 
he he was shocked there was an ETF for buybacks. I'm like, yeah, it's like five years old. The there's ticker? two of them, PKW. Yeah. Oh, come on. They need but then there's another job. buyback, and the differences between the two of them are pretty drastic. The fee, the way they're weighted, everything. And so you have two different experiences, even though they're both called the buyback ETF. And that's ultimately what you know. I think Todd and I share is trying to make sure you understand that. But I agree with them. When you look at the holdings and you look at the weightings, that's the engine. That is the most important part of the car, or the ETF in this case. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So let's actually talk about due diligence yeah. and how you approach that. So say I take an ETF off the shelf. What's the first thing I should do? So the, the first thing I think you should do is look at the holdings to go where Eric said. You should understand what it is that's inside that portfolio. I'm assuming that someone who's you're not, you didn't just randomly walk into the store and not know which store you walked into. So if you chose a certain store, you went there for a certain purpose in mind. And so you didn't go into... A department store and look for milk so necessarily. You, so you open the hood there. and it's like, okay, what's in here? So, and to try to understand how that fits in to whatever else you own. And if this is the first ETF that you're buying, then what you should be buying is something that's extremely diversified. Diversified from, if it's US ETF, from various sectors, healthcare, technology, financials, what have you. But you should take a look at, so we do research on the entire portfolio, but the top 10 holdings, which either are heavy weightings within the portfolio or they're slightly heavy weightings if it's something's more equally weighted. And those names should be something that you want to have within your portfolio. Now, we'll, we'll offer research that'll tell you what do we think of what that is. But even if you didn't want to use our research and you just went on, went on to a fact sheet or, or went onto a website or you found an ETF ticker on the, on the great Bloomberg terminal that's there, if you don't know what these companies are and these are not companies that make sense to have in your portfolio – then this shouldn't be anything you should be doing any further digging on. Yeah, I'll take this even further and I'll say I have a golden rule for picking ETFs and it's thou shalt not pick an ETF based on the name. Yes. So I'll give you two examples real quick. The iShares China ETF. This is a famous one. Todd knows where I'm going with this. FXI. It's the most traded, came out first, but it's half financials. And a lot of those are state-owned banks. You're not getting a lot of that tech in the tech surge that China has. So FXI can lag the rest of China uh, because it doesn't have that tech. Or another one, the social media ETF, right? That sounds pretty innocent, right? Oh, social media, Facebook, I like that. A third of it is emerging markets. It's much more volatile and filled with companies that you may not even ever heard of. And so those are some examples. And there's a gold funds that you think holds the gold, but holds gold futures. So the name sometimes works, but a lot of times it, it isn't what you think. So I'll offer another example there, and then perhaps we're going to stay in the weeds. Eric and I could probably do this going back and forth on tickers. <laughs> uh, so I use, for full disclosure, I, again, I used to work at S&P. I continue to use this ETF as an example beforehand. I'll give two of them. The Spider S&P Home Builder ETF only has a third of its exposure in home builders. It has home furnishing companies. It has building product companies. These are all related to the housing marketplace. but And not surprisingly this year, it's lagging behind its similarly named but yet different iShares Home Construction ETF, ITB. It's about half the performance. So 30% for the Spider product XHB, about 60% for that iShares ITB product. Why is iShares ITB doing better? Well, it holds home builders. It has 60% weighting in a very strong performing area. The second one I like to do, and again, I, I love the product. I really think that Wisdom Trees 
Uh, HEDJ, the Europe Hedge product, is an excellent product. It provides you amazing exposure to the Eurozone. But it doesn't have the word zone in its name. It only has exposure to Germany, France, Italy, Spain. It has no exposure to the United Kingdom, no exposure to Switzerland, two of the largest countries that are in Europe. We've seen the UK look to Brexit. Well, it's already Brexited this Wisdom Tree ETF. It's not there, and it wasn't there. And if you're trying to invest in those countries, this isn't the ETF for you. It's a very good one. It's just not an ETF for you for that exposure. And I think of the home builders, I uh, looked at this one a lot. That's a, probably the most stark difference. There could be a couple other in the same uh, category, but they their average performance difference every year is about 7%. So they're nowhere close. But I will say that they you could argue the names are actually okay because home construction is like I'm putting up the, the walls and the roof and then I'm out, right? That's And then home builders is like, oh, we're going to build a home, honey. We're going to go to Home Depot. We're going to get a, a jacuzzi. You know, we're going to get a dishwasher. Wow, okay. Yeah, we're going. What are you all building out. in your home? Well, man? it holds Whirlpool. Oh that, no, yeah. I understand that, but I didn't know you were getting a jacuzzi. In, in, I'm not. In the I apartment. wish. Okay, yeah. this is wishful thinking, Todd. Yes, okay, I, right. If you had, if you had a hundred thousand dollars to invest, instead of putting it into an ETF, you could invest it in your home a lot differently. Correct. And home built, like I'm just saying, home builders is a liberal take on building a home, whereas home construction is. But the point is, one of them is going to be a lot more volatile. The other one's going to move a lot less volatile because it's going to have more um, stocks that move more with the market. So, so bringing it back to, to where your initial question was on it, and again, Eric and I could probably do examples of tickers like this for more than you have time. Oh, well, in your, and spend time your, talking about Eric's love of jacuzzis, there, evidently. There I mean, you go. That was one I but did not know. We <laughs> Stop. <laughs> we, we, we started, you see, you asked about what, what do you look for. What I didn't lead with and what I still think people are spending too much attention on is the performance record of that ETF. So which one of those two examples is going to do best or did the best in 2017 has no bearing whatsoever on what's going to happen in 2018. And if you looked at a three-year track record, which is what some pe- people commonly do with a mutual fund, you're not going to get much understanding. 2018, we're going to have likely tax cuts for corporations that are going to be differently. We're likely to have the Federal Reserve raise interest rates, which is going to impact not only the stock market, but the bond market. What worked in 2017 is not going to work again in 2018. And we think investors need to be buying an ETF using the windshield in front of them instead of just the rearview mirror that's available in the car. Which is the, you know, the fine print. Which it right. always says. Right. Past performance, not indicative of future results, but people are buying products, or they used to be buying products in that regard. I think they're buying things now, as, as Eric will probably lead into, for something other than just the performance the performance record, but something else tied to fees. And just one quick thing on home builders. I think that this is where it comes into what are you using ETS for. If you're trading them and you're looking to play rates and, and you know e- economic data around home construction, I think these ETFs are great trading tools for that. But for most people who just want to take advantage of the low cost and the, and the tax efficiency, you're going to get a couple home builders in your bigger, more mammoth mainstream ETFs like the S&P 500 or the broad market. So I think that's also an important thing here when you're looking at the sort of windshield and what to play and what not to play. A lot of these stocks, are, are you feel a little bit of them in the bigger indices. I want to actually, we've said windshield twice now. And I'm imagining you both like in a cockpit with a windshield in front of you. Like, what? And as long as we've, we're talking about holdings, holdings obviously yeah. going to be a big part of that. What else is on your windshield? So, in addition to the holdings that we had that we have that we focus on, we th- we do think that expense ratio is is important. So, the more money that goes into your investment and less into the pocket of the asset manager the better your potential returns can be. Now, the, 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 in that example of that home construction one, just to beat that one, that dead horse a little bit, boy, let's not <laughs> Dead house. Let's do that. Well, I <laughs> guess dead jacuzzi. There you which go. Which I'm not All getting because right, I don't make enough. So, let's, so we're beating the dead house. We're beating, go, go so, with it. Right, we're beating the dead house. <laughs> Man. <laughs> the gap is much bigger than the expense ratio. But if you bought things that were cheaper – all things equal, if they're close enough in alignment, you're going to be better off. So we use the expense ratio in our analysis. We also think that liquidity is something that matters at the ETF level. So ETFs that have more assets tend to be traded more frequently. If they're traded, if there's more people who want to buy it when you're looking to sell it, that trading cost, also known as that bid-ask spread, is going to be much lower. And that's going to be another cost that's important for your returns. Just two quick metaphors in yeah. that. I tend to look at expense ratio as a termite, and it's living in your total return. 
And the smaller it is, the less it's going to eat out of that total return. And this ultimately, like Todd said earlier, is why active managers have struggled. It's not because they're that bad. They kind of have to play behind the starting line. They have to overcome a 1% expense ratio or something like that. Then all the trading costs in the fund, which are usually another percent, so you could say that the ETF or index fund plays with a huge lead. They're right behind the starting line, which would be the expense ratio. And so if you're active, you got to make that whole gap up just to be even. Then you got to try to outperform beyond that. And that ultimately hits to why this whole passive thing is, is, is getting so big is because people are understanding that. And so the, I agree. And the expense ratio should be a decision, part of the decision-making process, especially if it's something that is well-diversified. So we, again, have referenced the S&P 500 a couple of times. There's three ETFs that are out there that track that market cap-weighted product. Two of them are four basis points. The third one is nine basis points. You know, as I, Eric has talked about beforehand, I believe you know money is going into the cheaper products because it's a similar product. The difference is, uh, you know, if you invested ten thousand dollars in the iShares product versus the Spider product in the beginning of this year, you would have saved four dollars, enough to buy yourself a cup of coffee someplace. But it really didn't make that much of a difference of what's there, or a slice of pizza in Penn Station. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard. Joel recommends not eating because he threw up after he did. But but, but not enough to pay for termite damage. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the lower the fee, the better, as long as there's enough similarity in the strategies that you're comparing with one another. This whole concept of going to just the cheapest fund, you're right. One basis point cheaper is now moving billions of dollars. Right. One, okay, this one's four basis points instead of five. I'm going to put my money into it. I agree that it's short-sighted. But do you think that there is some... Do you understand why people are doing that? Do you think that there's this backlash over the last 20 years where they thought, man, I paid all this money and I didn't really get a lot out of it. The only thing I trust right now is the cost. Like it's become like almost like a backlash against trusting performance in the past. So I think people should be buying among the cheapest products that are out there. But I think what they should do is they should pick up two or three products that fit that criteria of what they're looking for. And you can screen on various brokerage platforms. You can do it on Bloomberg. You can do it from our research tools at CFRA. Find three ETFs that are out there. Let the expense ratio be one of the characteristics that you look at. But then similarly, even though I don't think people should buy based on the the best performing ETF, if you saw a performance differential that was a couple of basis points, then buy the cheapest one that's out there. It really doesn't matter from the alternatives. But if you look at something and you see something is outperforming by 400, 500, 600 basis points versus something else, and it's more expensive or it's cheaper, you might want to investigate why that is. Do a little bit further analysis to say, here's what this is, here's what's different. There's been product fee cuts have happened, and we saw you know State Street, for example, lower the fees quite sharply, and they're now commission-free available on, on a certain platform as well. There's similarities between what's going in and what you know, State Street replaced on the TD Ameritrade platform, but then there's some differences. If you're looking at things that are dividends or you're looking at things that are outside the United States, there's a big gap because they're constructed differently. And so I understand why people are buying the cheapest. You want to pay as little as possible for that. You'd, you'd want to get a second opinion before you ended up you – know, you don't go to the cheapest car mechanic that's out there. There's a reason things are cheap sometimes. Sometimes. And I agree there's definitely something to that. And again, the holdings and the weightings are like the engine, back to the car metaphor. And you're right. I also think a lot of this low, lowest of the low cost is driven by advisors who are worried about this uh, – there's a fiduciary rule coming. And they are now connecting fiduciary with cheapness. They just think if they don't pick the lowest cost product possible, they might get sued for not being fiduciary. And that's a whole nother sort of angle on this. But I think you're right. There is possible people could crowd in to something that they didn't really want just because it was a little cheaper than the other one. But there's things – the the good – I'll do the good for the fact that fees are coming down is things that you wouldn't have paid attention to beforehand because the price was too high is now – available and on someone's radar screen. And now there's more choices. So there's more low-cost choices to consider. You don't have to just buy something because it undercut by, by one penny or a dollar out of your, your $10,000 investment, but it's available for you to be able to compare and contrast with. And I love that there's more choices that's out there. One, again, you know, career longevity. They need someone to help sort through this universe that's out there. I also love it because 
I, you know, you don't want to just buy something just because it's at the front of the register. You know, they, they, they you know, at a at a store, they'll try to get you by your eyes catch something for where it is. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for you. There's certain things that are at a different level of the shelf that make a lot of sense for you overall. Totally, but there, this is where this gets when I when we point out cheap stuff, especially on Twitter. I'll get the same comment from different people, and it's it's almost inevitable. Uh, an active manager will go, "Well, would you pay? You know, would you always pick the cheapest clothes or the cheapest car?" Yes, there is what you're saying is true, but this is different because cost does come out of your return. It's not the same. It's complicated. It's not just like oh, if because if a manager charges four percent, that does not mean you're, they're going to do better. It's not the same as buying clothes or cars where like okay, a Lamborghini is what. Um, Call it half a mil. Half a million dollars. That's definitely the best car, right? Right. Yeah. It's better than the uh, uh, Chevette, uh, right? It's better than a Chevette. Okay, fine. Yeah. But in in investing, it's possible if you paid a hedge fund 3%, the Vanguard whatever at four basis points could outperform it, and that cost could be a big difference. That That's... That's where it's there's it's a there's a gray area I think. Oh, completely agree. So you should. That's why cost shouldn't be the only thing that matters. Holding shouldn't be the only thing that matters. Performance should be the only thing that matters. The good thing is ETFs are transparent. They tell you what's happening. The ETF providers on their website will show you everything that was in the portfolio as of yesterday. They'll show you a bunch of metrics. Again, because they have to. As they have to, and thankfully they have to, so we can do research that compares and contrasts things. You have that on the Bloomberg terminal as well to be able to do that. It's there for you to then learn as much as possible about your potential investment. The same way you would learn as much as possible when deciding, again, whether to buy a car and what it is or what school you might put your kid into or what neighborhood you might look to buy a house in. But you just shouldn't buy the cheapest just because it's the cheapest. We talked about holdings and we talked about cost, which are probably like the two most important things from a due diligence standpoint. But let's kind of change gears and go next level and talk about some of the things that you guys, being the professionals that you are, incorporate into due diligence. And there's a word that I want to drop that I think we want to start with, which is liquidity. How do you guys look at that? Liquidity is another way of how much it's traded, how much activity is there there. And you know, volume is what most people think of because stocks have volume and that's all they have. But an ETF, this gets a little complicated because the way shares are created and redeemed, you could use the basket of the ETF as another source of liquidity. So it's complicated, but I think in general, you should start looking at the volume. But I'm pretty liberal. I, I think unless it doesn't trade that much or trade, say, less than, um, we'll call it maybe like a million dollars a day. Some ETFs are really like on the death watch, as Ron Rowland would call them. There's ETFs that are like on life support. There might be like four or 500 of those. Then there's a middle pack where you probably have to be careful putting in, in maybe a certain kind of order, like a limit order. But then I'd say the top 500 ETFs, you're probably just fine doing that. And so if you had to have a cutoff of volume, I would say maybe over 10 or $20 million worth of volume a day. And you know that's, they're going to have pretty tight spreads. That's just there's there's nuances to this, but generally that's that's what I think of as liquidity. Yeah, and so the the connection to spreads, which is part of the cost conversation that we that we had earlier, I think is relevant specifically with equity ETFs. So we look at the bid ask spread as a metric that we use within our within our research at CFRA. We don't look at the trading volume specifically, and when we're looking at it, it's more at the share traded as opposed to the dollar amount. You can see it's reported in both ways. You just have to make sure you're doing the math to figure out what that is, the number of shares you might be putting in. I think I would think of it this way. If you were looking to put in a trade and how much was your amount of money to go in in relation to what that daily volume is, and if it's disproportionately high, then I'd be concerned. That would be a red flag for me as an individual investor because I may be able to buy the shares. That's, it's not too hard to find someone who wants to have shares created, as Eric talked about. It's the getting out part when you want to get out. That, that tends to be the bigger challenge. And often when you want to get out is often when other people want to get out too and the price you end up paying. Uh, a couple of the other things to it. One, because these, if we're talking about equity ETFs, new shares can be created relatively e- easily when there's high demand for what that is. And if you're buying a large cap-oriented ETF that holds Apple 
and Exxon and Facebook and what have you, then there's liquidity in those underlying shares that new things can get be created quite easily. If you're looking at emerging markets or you're looking at small caps um, or you're looking perhaps at you know something that's more narrow and focus thematic for where it is, where there's a number of stocks that don't trade as frequently individually, then that should be a bigger problem. Within bond ETFs or fixed income ETFs, we do think liquidity should matter. So trading volume in relation to market cap, in part because, and I know you guys have talked about this beforehand, not every bond trades on a daily basis, even though the ETF that holds those bonds trades on a daily basis. So to create new shares of a bond is a little bit harder to be able to do to get full representation of what's out there. And so that's why we think it's more important to pay attention to liquidity in the bond ETF product, specifically if you're talking about something like in the corporate space uh, or an emerging market space. But high-yield bonds, you know, something like a quarter of the underlying bonds inside are trading possibly on a daily basis. I think it's even less. But, um, you know, like we said last week, that that is definitely one I would not call plain vanilla, which is high-yield. But I just want to take a quick step back and sort of define bid-ass spread. I think that's a term that sounds kind of jargony. Really, just think about it, about there's people who are in the middle of all this action, right? They buy and sell shares so that you can buy and sell shares. We call them market makers. They make a market in that, right? So you can think of Las Vegas or if you've ever had a bookie, not that I have, but you know, if you have out there, they, you know, they call the VIG. It's a little tiny piece just for them being in the middle and offering two markets to people. And that is what the spread is. And the more the ETF trades, the bid is what they'll sell it to you for. The ask is what they're asking to buy it. So there's usually a tiny difference, and that's just what they keep. So a lot of ETFs trade with what's called a penny spread. So they're only keeping a penny of that transaction. Some can creep up to three, four, five cents. But if you take that and turn it into a percentage, you're looking at maybe one to 20 basis points. And as Todd was looking at earlier, the longer your holding period the more that gets diluted over time. So when we talk about mutual funds, they have front-end loads where they, they – and a lot of mutual funds would charge you 5% just to get in. That is what I look at the spread as. It's sort of a an initial fee for getting in, and you could look at 1 to 20 basis points as nickel-dime compared to a load in a mutual fund. So I think sometimes that's a kind of a different way to look at what a spread is. Yeah, as a cover charge. Basically, yeah, cover charge, yeah. yeah that's, a good, that's a good way of, of thinking of it as well. I, I do think the way, the way that you're thinking of it is important. So people who are first embracing ETFs and perhaps are learning more about it through, through these podcasts are coming at it from a mutual fund world where you're used to putting in an order whenever you want to put in an order and it gets executed and your money gets taken from you and put into the underlying investments at 4 p.m. when the market is closed or after 4 p.m. when the market has closed in that regard. And then nothing – it just all happens behind the scenes and they take out whatever that sales load is and, and your $10,000 ends up being you know, $950 less or whatever it is for the cost. The ETF is transparent. They, it, you can see what's happening there. That's an advantage to you as an investor, but it shouldn't scare you out of doing it. The same way if you're going to buy a stock, there is a trading cost to buying a stock. There's a trading cost to buying an ETF. It just – because – Things are so competitive, the same way it is in the ETF space, in this market maker space, when there's a lot of volume, the costs come down quite low and are quite favorable for a potential investor. If you're buying something that nobody else is buying, you're going to have to pay a premium for that execution to get that trade taken part of. And that may make sense for you to do. It may be worth it because it's the only way to get exposure to a certain trend. Yeah, and I would I, I have a term I call exoticness. Think about what you're buying. Okay. If it's you know junk bonds or uh, the Vietnam ETF, yeah. if it seems exotic, know that there's probably some some frictional costs that are going to be associated with that. Whereas if it's plain vanilla, you're probably going to be charged hardly anything in terms of that cover charge. So because the the cover charge that like in the high yield area, that may not show up in the spread, but then there's also the premium. There's other ways that, in other words, there's no free lunch. You know the the people who are making these markets and doing all this work, they're going to take a cut for themselves. It's just a much smaller cut compared to what a load was for a mutual fund. Yeah. So if I could just do the free lunch part of it, uh, because we're seeing more and more these days, and we touched on it earlier of, of, I think, TD Ameritrade when they made changes to the platform, we're seeing commission-free products widely available on various brokerage platforms, Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade, all these various, Merrill Edge, I think, has it as well. 
And so that's a cost that you'd be paying from a commission standpoint that continues to come down, but there is still a cost there. Something can be commission-free. It sounds, well, okay, great. I can be able to buy this and not pay any additional charges or, or cover charges for what that is. But if that trading cost, a bid-ask spread, is relatively wide because no one else is doing it, it's showing up on this platform perhaps because the asset manager wants to make this, they want to get premium uh, shelf space for what it is. Some things, again, that are showing up on there make sense in a portfolio, and some things don't. And it really is something that an investor needs to go beyond. Okay, so back to this next level windshield. You guys are in this cockpit looking at all your various stuff. There's another one, volatility. How do you take that into account? So we do the only metric from an ETF perspective that we rely on historical performance is a standard deviation. If an ETF has a three-year track record, we use that three-year standard deviation. If it doesn't yet have a three-year track record, we still are rating it. We cover about 400 ETFs that don't yet have a three-year track record at CFRA, but we do think it's relevant. So above average returns taking on above average risk isn't necessarily a good thing for every investor. Some people are willing to, to deal with that level of volatility from within. So again, you don't want to just pick 2017's best performing securities uh, ETFs. They're often the best performing ones in 2017 because they significantly underperformed in 2016. And then there's a good chance that they're going to revert back to the mean in 2018 if there's a lot of volatility. So we that's one of the things that we focus on at, at CFRA. Standard and deviation, huh? Standard deviation sounds like something from stats class in college. So before, But it, I'm telling you, this is. I'm going to reformat it for you. There you go. You ever gone skiing? Yeah. I know you have, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, snowboarding. Yeah, of course. Anyway, well, I like to ski. Joel likes to snowboard. Anyway, when you get to the top of the hill, there's a, a sign for how steep the slope is, right? Double black diamond, blue, green for That's where for you me. are. Yeah, that's yeah. where I am. I, I where's, hang the, on. where's the bunny slope called? Because yeah. that's what I'm usually on still. <laughs> you got, you got so, a Phillies jacket, right? And it's like unzipped and flapping in the breeze. I can totally see you on the green. I know, I know your type. I'll let you live with that image because it's better than the reality, but that's okay. So the ski slope metaphor works. And when we when Todd talked earlier about whether you're buying equal weighted or how it's weighted and you could buy you could be unpleasantly surprised, standard deviation will tell you how much up and down you're going to experience. Mm. All standard deviation is, say, say the standard deviation is 20%. That just means there's a two-third percent chance that it's going to go up or down 20%. That's the range. So what you want to do is look at where the S&P 500 is. I think right now the standard deviation is about 6%, maybe yeah. 7%. That's a little low because volatility has been low. So where is this ETF I'm going to buy? Take something like XOP, the Spider yeah. Oil Drillers. Right, the exploration and production. Seems like a, yeah. a pretty general sector play, but that probably has a standard deviation of, of 25%. So you got to go, okay, this is three times as likely to lose me or win me money than the S&P 500. But then a bond ETF might have a standard deviation of 2% or 3%. That is why that is so key because if you miss something on the holdings or the weightings, the standard deviation will alert you to what might be inside because you could have an equal uh, a market cap weighted portfolio, but you might not notice they're all small caps. Right. And the standard deviation will clue you out that, hey, this is going to be a wild ride. Mm. So you, you did the Philly thing. I'm a, I'm a Met fan. Not a you know, not a good year this past year for it. Is it a year? Uh, I'm it, with you. I feel it, your pain, man. It, it, it's been there before. 2018 <laughs> is going to be a better one. Pitchers won't get hurt this year. At least year. you had 86. Mm. Uh, but, it, you know, to, to use a baseball analogy, you know, singles and doubles is a good way of going. If you're, if you're a home run hitter and you're aiming for the home runs and swinging for the fences for what it is, you're going to strike out quite a bit. So something that has relatively low volatility or relatively consistent performance is going to be – you could be a 300 hitter getting singles and doubles all the time and be able to do that as opposed to, um, again, Met fan, not a Yankee fan, Aaron Judge who hits home runs and strikes out quite a bit. Good ball player, different, different kind of expectations that you have. Okay, so Todd, here we are marching along through your checklist. What do we come to next? So we covered a number of things. We covered holdings. We covered costs. We covered liquidity. The one thing that we don't use that I know others do is is tracking error. And Which is what? So how well that ETF tracks the underlying index that it chose to track. And so the reason we don't do that is, is I guess, a couple of things. But most importantly, most ETFs are tracking a different index than something else you might be considering. 
And so, yes, it makes sense if you're dealing with those three S&P 500 index-based products that we talked about this year. We're seeing about a five basis point differential between SPY and IVV and VOO, the three S&P 500 index-based products. Coincidentally, that's the difference in the fee that's there. And so that's one of the reasons that they'll be different. But if you're looking at one, you know, we use home builders as the example, but if you're looking at a low volatility ETF from PowerShares SPLV and a min- minimum volatility ETF from iShares USMV as the example, the indexes are quite different. The rules are different. The holdings are different. The sector exposure is different. The fact that one tracks its index better than the other one really doesn't tell you how well it's doing because it's it's trying to track something completely different. How well at I am at following one recipe uh, and how well Eric is at following a completely different recipe doesn't make any sense if I'm making you know peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he's making meatball that's, parm. That, that's all that Eric knows how to make is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Do not sandwiches. mention food because he goes crazy. He t- he's Now he cannot focus <laughs> on the, the show anymore. But how do you feel about tracking here? So I agree with Todd. You're right. They're all tracking different things. I guess I would look at it because the, the re- I would take a step back, though. What's an ETF's purpose in this life? It is to track an index. I mean, that's ultimately what it's designed to do. And people think it's like a robot, right? Like there's Hal, right, from Space Odyssey sitting there tracking the index. But there are human beings who tracking an index, in, a lot of things happen, rebalances, corporate actions. They've got to make sure they uh, track that index well. And that's passive portfolio management. I think it's an underrated job. It's because if you tie, you win and nobody cares. Like in other words, if you're not noticed, that's a good thing. But so that's why I bring up if you notice a high tracking difference, that could be a red flag. So you look at the index return and you look at the ETF return. If they're really far off, you may want to just think, okay, why? You know, what's going on? Like the Vietnam ETF, back to that one, that does have a high tracking error. But in that one, you could go, well, that's because I'm getting local Vietnamese stocks. It's a lot of, it's highly exotic I'll live with it. But if you see a high tracking on like a mid-cap growth fund or something like that. It might mean somebody's asleep at the wheel. Correct. I want to ask you one more question that gets right to the heart of who you are and what you do. Because you're both an analyst for mutual funds and for ETFs. And obviously, we've talked a lot about the growth of the ETF. But to some extent, that's at the expense of the mutual fund. So what do you think the future of the mutual fund is? So I think that we're going to continue to see money bleeding out of actively managed funds, and it's certainly inexpensive actively managed funds. It's been happening within the equity space. Investors are still quite comfortable paying somebody to drive the car in the fixed income space and, and wanting an Uber driver, so to speak. The difference between active and equity and active and fixed income, don't you think that because the S&P is market cap weighted and that's the big benchmark, and like if stocks do better, they get a bigger weighting, and so it's harder to beat something that's got this momentum in it, whereas on the fixed income side... The aggregate bond index that is ours is weighted by the debt the company has outstanding, and thus it doesn't have that momentum feel, and it's just way easier to beat. Do you, do you think that plays into what you just yes, said? Yes, I think it completely plays into it, and I think in part there's a – people are comparing it perhaps to the wrong thing. So Bloomberg Barclays also has something that's a different fixed income uh, index. I, I know the ticker that's part of it that iShares has that's a core – fixed income product that's there that, that has some high yield exposure to it. It has a little bit more corporate instead of just being tied to the, the treasuries that's there. It is a little bit harder, but people don't feel comfortable following what's going on in the Federal Reserve and following corporate issuance the same way they do tracking what's going on in the stock market. So people are willing to pay for often average performance within the fixed income space. I do think that's going to shift. I think in 2018, we're going to see harder returns to come by for actively managed funds as the Fed continues to raise interest rates. If we hit a year now that we have ETF choices where the average actively managed bond fund declines in value, that's going to be a red flag in 2019 for people to go, wait, I'm paying how much for you to lose money? I might as well pay seven, eight basis points for AGG uh, or BND from Vanguard or, or some of the dozens of other products that are low cost in nature. So I do think they have a role active and passive and mutual funds and ETFs can play a role in both portfolios. But I do think the tide is continuing to shift towards ETFs. But as long as people want to know something about mutual funds, then we at CFRA want to help them with tools to be able to do that. So closing question. Yeah. 
favorite ETF ticker? My favorite ETF ticker? Sheesh, I didn't come prepared for that one. That, we, we, that's why we come put on, you on the spot, man. Just scan your brain. I know they're all yeah. in there. Yeah. They're all floating around. It looks like it's like a ticker soup in there. <laughs> Jeez, I, don't, I don't have a favorite ticker. I, the ones, so I find things being just that when they paint a good picture of what it is. So like you, the wood and cut, which are paper-related and forest products, the image works Wait, out quite well. There's a wood ETF? There's a wood, W-O-O-D. D, which owns yeah, timber. timber companies, <laughs> yeah. and then there's a cut ETFC. They're actually both doing really well. I mean, they're good performers. Those, so those are two yeah. that come to mind because you can picture yeah. the image for where yeah. it is. Uh, See, and, I like and cut it because it's a verb. See, I'm a fan of the verb tickers, <laughs> but my favorite is moo. To me, that is the Mona Lisa of ETF tickers because not only is it a verb, but it's something everyone loves a cow saying moo it's like kind of just takes you back to your childhood that's the global agribusiness etf yeah you know what to, to me that's probably that number one is that we didn't really ask him for his favorite but he felt no, fun to show yes, too. It's like, oh, you said both right. of you <laughs> no i didn't say both yes you did oh, okay if there's a ticker that's out there that someone thinks would be interesting there's likely to be an etf to follow suit todd rosenbluth thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure guys Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and a bunch of other places I probably haven't heard about yet. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. Trillions is produced by Jordan Bell with help from Magnus Henriksen. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.